Welcome to Singular DTB podcast. My name is Miguel Martinez, Michael 27A for the blockchain community for Singular DTB. Today's episode, it's going to be really interesting because we're going to be talking about entertainment law and intellectual property. Joining us today is Davy J. And I have to say that it's really interesting because she was actually one of my professors at Full Sail University, and we're not going to go into how many years ago, please, for the sake of both of us. But it's a pleasure to have you join us. Davy. how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing really well. Thanks. Awesome. So before we dive into you know the conversation, talk to us about your expertise, experience, and how are you in, what are you doing in the entertainment industry in particular? Okay. Um, well, um, I am an attorney in the state of Florida and, um, I'm a partner at a law firm here in Orlando and throughout my legal career, I have, uh, focused my practice on entertainment and intellectual property law. That's the vast majority of what I do. Um, of course, wrapped into that, we have like contracts and things like, you know, other areas of law, but that's, you know, the meat and potatoes of my day to day is, is really, um, working with, you know, creatives, developers, you know, people who are launching a new business in the entertainment realm in some way, shape or form and assisting them with that launch and the contracts they need and negotiating deals, you know, for people, whether it be a writer whose property got picked up to be developed into a series or a filmmaker who's shooting a new project or, you know, really, you know, all these different facets of the entertainment industry. Um, I serve as, as, you know, their, their legal guidance in that regard and do that work for them. Uh, in addition, I, um, was the 2017, 2018 chair for the Florida bar entertainment arts and sports law section. And, um, so I arranged for continuing education for other attorneys who engage in this sort of practice as well. And as you mentioned, um, I taught for, uh, quite a few years. Um, I will say there's two digits there <laughs> at the undergraduate and graduate level. I taught entertainment law. And, um, so that's kind of the gist of what I do. I remember also that in one of the classes, there was, um, I always forget his name, but one of the producers for the Backstreet Boys that actually uh, teaches at Full Sail um, or the recording engineer um, for the Millennium album for the Backstreet Boys, he always used to say, whenever I go into any meeting, Davey's right next to me. And I'm yeah. like, why? And then I took the class and I'm like, this makes sense. Now I understand his thought process. And Bill from finance, he always used to say, whenever you, whenever in doubt, consult your gut. And if you're able to afford it, consult with Davey. I'm like, okay, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, and it's one of those things where I tell people it's so much easier and honestly cheaper for me to help somebody at the beginning on the, on the front end of what they're doing than it is for me to come in later on a project um, or in an endeavor. Um, you know, it's, it's always something where, you know, we can get you started the right way rather than, you know, fixing and undoing things later. Um, you know, so it, it, I get it, you know, like lawyers can be expensive and I understand that so that's not always an option for everybody. Um, but I think for people who don't have those resources, it's just as important for them to educate themselves. Um, certainly there are, right. you know, books out there and websites and, um, you know, even my firm, we offer, you know, free seminars that are open to the public on various things, you know, various topics, you know, whether it be entertainment law or business law or, you know, trademarks or whatever. So I really encourage people, you know, wherever they are to, to look around and search out those resources so that they can educate themselves about how to succeed in the business. Correct. So as you, as we were discussing right before we began recording, Singular DTP is an entertainment studio based on blockchain technology, creating an ecosystem of decentralized applications where it will allow filmmakers, musicians, independent content creators to tokenize their intellectual property. I've actually discussed, and one of the main things that I always try to educate people in our community or token holders and anyone that I engage in conversations is the importance of your intellectual property, whether it is your lyrics, a riff, uh, an application that you're trying to develop, your art as far as paintings or your digital art right now, which is very important, logos that you're designing, 
everything that can be considered that is actually created by your mind. Um, and of course, intellectual property, when it comes to law, there's a vast, uh, you know, lingo that you actually have to dive into. But my main question for you is, what's the real important thing that everyone that creates art or any type of intellectual property needs to take the first step before they go in and say, I made a demo, I did this, I'm going to sign a deal with this label. What should be the first step? Well, I think first they, they need to understand what they have. Um, you know, and, and you might say, oh, I've got a song, I've got lyrics, I've got a film, I've got an image. Um, but what I mean by what they have is, you know, what rights do you have? And that that's the first fundamental misconception of intellectual property is some people think, well, I don't own it because I haven't registered it. You know, that's, that's false. You with a copyright and copyrights protect works of art. Um, with the copyright, you have rights the minute you make something tangible and tangible in this realm has a different definition. Tangible, just it includes digital assets as well. It's anything capable of being uh, perceived or reproduced either directly or, or with the aid of a machine or device. So what that means is the minute, you know, you record something, the minute, you know, you create a digital image, you automatically have a copyright. And so that means as the copyright owner, you have the exclusive right to um, reproduce, perform publicly, display publicly, uh, distribute and copies of the work and also to derive from it, to make copies or, or to make not copies, verbatim copies, but to make um, variations, edits, remixes, adaptations, uh, you know, sequels, you know, that sort of thing, a derivative work. Um, so a lot of people don't understand that they have rights right away. And so the next thing that, that kind of comes on the heels of that is even though you have those rights immediately, it's really the best thing you can do for yourself is to register those rights. Um, the registration gives you enforcement power. Um, because even though you have your rights immediately, and unless and until you register your copyrights with the United States Copyright Office, um, and you go to copyright.gov to do it, it's really quite easy and straightforward. Um, and they even have tutorials, you know, that you can download and look at first. Um, but once you register, you suddenly have this huge uh, arsenal to protect your rights. And, you know, so I tell people it's kind of like with, with your home, you know, when you leave home in the morning, go to work, you lock your door, um, you know, that's your house and nobody should break in, right? That's yours. But, right. you know, you don't walk out of your house and leave the front door wide open. And the reason why is because people would walk in, right? So you want to discourage right. people from coming in and taking your stuff. So right. the copyright registration is kind of like locking your front door and then leaving like a Rottweiler with a drooling problem on your front porch, you know, because that registration allows you to sue for up to $150,000 in damages, statutory damages. It allows you to be reimbursed for your attorney's fees and court costs. And at the end of the day, what that really means is if somebody is stealing your work, if they're, they're infringing your rights, um, it's a lot easier to get them to stop if those are the potential outcomes for them. You know, so it's, it's kind of like I tell people, you know, oh, if you show somebody the big stick you can hit them with, they're a lot more likely to behave. So registration helps with that. And it also makes it easy for people to find you to license your work. So like if I saw an image that you created or a film that you created that I really wanted to license and I wanted to pay you for that license, how am I going to find out who owns the rights to this? Well, with your copyright registration, you list the owner and you can include contact information. So this way it makes it really easy for me to identify who the owner is and to be able to give them money. Um, and that's really, you know, art is a wonderful thing for a lot of reasons, but I, I know that the vast majority of the people in, you know, the entertainment and arts industries aren't in it just for the creative expression. They would also like to eat, you know, so you'd like to make some money too. So make it easy for people to give you money and, you know, that's going to help you along the way. Definitely. It's specifically because um, right now there is the whole problem of what, tr you know, recording your song and then all of a sudden you share it with the world, whether it's through a, a free service where you can actually upload your song and then share it and people will actually listen to it and play it 
a hundred thousand times or you just go to YouTube and upload yourself singing and whatever, mm -hmm. but you actually don't have a, uh, you don't have anything to back up the fact that people are clicking play and that's you and you're protecting your intellectual property. So people don't go like, Oh, that riff or that, um, you know, that, that part of the song actually sounds cool. And then people start ripping that and try to make it. And then you have, then five years later, that becomes a hit and you don't, you don't have anything to protect yourself to say, I actually did that. I did it back this many years ago. Hits on YouTube. I was public. And then, Oh, where's your copyright? Well, I don't have any. And then there's a whole lawsuit of uh, he said and she said on a courtroom. And then it's just settled on amount of money, whether if you actually had a copyright it, um, registration, it would be like, that's mine. You're rip it off. And then we actually have to uh, share songwriting agreements and such. Correct? Yeah. And, you know, and the real thing is, in my experience, that when you don't have that registration, the other party gets really emboldened. You know, the person who's been ripping you off, they're going to say things like, yeah, so sue me. And the reason why they'll say that is because they know you probably won't sue if you don't have the registration before the infringement happened. And the reason why is because, you know, suing somebody for copyright infringement is not cheap. It's, you know, you're going to easily throw down at a minimum if it goes to trial, you know, $70,000. There's no guarantee If you don't have that registration before infringement, there's no, you know, you can't reasonably expect that you'll get your attorney's fees awarded to you or that even potentially you would get awarded enough in damages to justify the expense, you know, versus right. if you have that registration, now it's all the more likely that you will sue because you do get those uh, damages available to you. So the other right. party will understand that it's a very real and serious threat if there's a registration in place versus it's not as real, it's not as serious if there's no registration, you know? Yeah. That actually makes a whole lot of sense. There's right now Iron Maiden was, there's a whole deal with Iron Maiden getting sued for 40 year old songs because of the lyrics uh, and people claiming that, Oh, part of the lyrics that you guys use for how be thy name were actually written by another band in London. And apparently there's no copyright registration over in London of that song. So there it, it got settled, but now there's this attorney going over and over saying that there are other clients that he has that claim that our mating actually Steve Harris, uh, particularly, um, and Dave Morey, actually kind of own, you know, rip off lyrics to use in their songs. And I mean, up, I mean, it's, It's Iron Maiden. We know we know who they are. Everyone knows. Even my mom knows who Iron Maiden is. Right, right. But and a couple of people that I've actually talked to, they're like, well, of course they're gonna go after Iron Maiden. They're they're millionaires, and and I mean, what are they trying to get? Just qu a quick cash so they can actually pay off their mortgage and go on vacation to Disneyland mm -hmm. or something? I, mean, I don't know, but it's it's a matter of are you really are, people actually uh, try to get you know, try to get into lawsuits and just to try to get to the settlement. And they just made a, they just make a quick box so artists can actually just, all right, pay him whatever and let's just move on. But actually that type of things, what that's the really important when you are the people that, the, the person that it's getting ripped off, that people are using your intellectual property, that's one of the first things that you always need to do. Whenever I go into someone that they want to, they want me to listen to their demo, Um, I always ask them, do you have an NDA? What's that? If you don't know the, if you don't know what that is, consult with the lawyer first, get an NDA, and then I'll listen to your demo because I don't want to, even, even myself, I don't want to get myself into a position where they, when at any point in time, someone else down, down, I don't know, down in four years said, I, I play something and they're like, that's mine. I'm going to sue you. I'm like, Why? yeah. And, and that's an important point because when you're working with somebody else, you are liable for their contribution to your work, you know? So like if you and I decide to collaborate on something and you want to, you know, uh, use my music to go along with your lyrics, if my music infringes somebody's rights, and even though you're completely unaware, you know, if you use my music and release a song with your lyrics and my music, you can still get sued for that. I mean, I'd be a defendant as well, but you would still be, you know, it is not a defense to say, well, Davey's the one that wrote the music, Or I wasn't aware. 
Um, unfortunately, when it comes to infringement, you know, not being aware, it's, it's just like speeding, you know, like saying to the cop, you know, oh, sorry, officer, I wasn't aware that I was going over the speed limit doesn't result in the cop going, oh, my apologies, have a nice day, no ticket for you. You know, like that's, so copyright's the same way. So it's really important when you're working with other people to understand that you're also potentially absorbing liability for their actions as well. Yeah, definitely. So moving moving towards um, deals in as far as intellectual properties and, you know, you know, the economy of the entertainment industry. Um, usually once you, you, you created the song and now you want to be this amazing rock band and, or this amazing hip hop star and you go towards um, a record label. One of the first things that record labels tend to do is in order to, for them to sign you up, they offer you a uh, money advance and, they say we're going to offer you a standard contract. Now we all know that there's no such thing as a standard contract. It's the standard contract that, that their version of that standard of their standard contract at that point in time for that artist. But they tend right. to say standard contract because it's let's just get this out of the way, sign, and we're going to own, we're going to now own your masters. Yes. And yeah. because because basically you're giving us rights, so we own the masters, and now we're gonna put this masters to work for us to generate money. And in 35 years, back in the 80s, in 35 years, you're gonna get back all the rights to the masters, and now you're gonna be able to get all the rights for all the licenses, mechanical synchronization licenses, and such. Am I correct? You can only get those rights back if you, 35 years later, if you give them notice within a timely manner in that one year period of time. Um, and so uh -huh. it's one of those things where you have a very limited window of opportunity to potentially recapture rights. Um, and so it's something that people have, you know, some people are aware, they've got it on their calendar, other people, you know. If I said to you, you know, like, hey, 35 years from now, you're going to have to file something, you know, there's a really good chance that you would overlook it, especially when you, that date is a, it's based on each individual work, you know, and the date that, that original date of that transfer of that work. So, you know, you might have one thing this year and five things next year and two things the year after that, you know, it's really easy to lose track of, but it's, yeah. it is possible to recapture. Yeah. It's it's funny because um, I, every single episode I mention Metallica, but it's my go-to. I mean, it's my it's it's my favorite band. But it's funny because when I was growing up, um, all records of Metallica used to be at eighteen ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine dollars mark. Yeah. Always, no yes. matter. And I'm like, it's twenty. It's been twenty years. I mean, or ten years since load reload and 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 black album and and justice for all came out why am i still paying almost 20 dollars for this for these albums and then all of a sudden after 2014 the albums dropped to 13.99 14.99 and you could actually get um reload and load for 9.99 i'm like what happened and i came to the realization a couple months ago Oh, they got their masters back and now everything's under Black End Recordings, which is their own label. And now they actually went moved away from ASCAP and now they're pressing their own vinyl and now they're re remixing and remastering all of their albums. And now all the revenue is actually going to Metallica and not going through these guys, the gatekeepers, ASCAP, the the managers, the old producers, uh, the old executive producers, so on and so forth. Now all the revenue is actually going to Metallica, which brings me to the to the point. Are publishing once you actually do the record deal and stuff, publishing is the other aspect. And if you actually don't read well your contract as far as what the record label is actually promising and what the publishing company that you choose to go to, you could actually get stuck with, they release the initial albums, but then they actually move to new formats. And then they're not, if they actually don't put in the contract that new formats, present and future formats of distribution, if that is not in the contract, you are going to get stuck and you're not actually going to be able to get 
um, royalties out of that, or you're going to get stuck with uh, revenue and synchronization licenses and, you know, how you're actually going to get paid, basically, correct? Well, I mean, yeah, the whole thing with the contracts is, you know, the devil is in the details. Um, And every contract is sort of like a magic spell, you know, and what words you put in are going to dictate what the outcome is, you know, and if you don't use the right words, the magic doesn't work. Um, And so when it comes to, you know, contracts regarding music, um, so for the publishing side, the publishing side refers to that the money you generate from the musical work, like the lyrics and the melody, the notation versus the sound recording, which is, you know, if I did a cover version of, you know, um, a Metallica song, I'd own the sound recording, whereas they would still own the musical work because they wrote that part that's theirs, but the sound recording version would be mine. So the publishing aspect can potentially generate a lot of revenue, um, because there's a lot of different ways to license it. It, more so than the sound recording. So potentially there's a lot of revenue from the publishing, but people just don't understand it um, frequently. So like, you know, like the, you mentioned ASCAP, like ASCAP and BMI, those are performing rights organizations that will collect money for the public performance of, of the um, musical work side of things for the publishing. So every time you hear a song on the radio or it's in a, you know, in a TV show or a commercial, that's all being, that's a public, or even if you're in a restaurant, you hear a song being played or you're, you know, any store you hear a song being played, that's paid licensing for the public performance. Cause that's one of the exclusive rights I mentioned in your copyright. So that's, you know, the songwriter is getting paid for that every time. So you've got to make sure that your contract isn't taking more of those potential revenues from you than it should. You've got to make sure that it's, you know, a fair bargain as far as what you're contracting for and what percentages you're going to be getting. And, you know, you always have to understand that, you know, if you take an advance, that money is paid back, you know, like that's, that's an advance against your future royalties. That's not, you know, a free gift of money. That's just, you know, it's going to be that much longer until you see a royalty check because that advance has to be paid back out of your royalties. Um, so you always want to be aware of that, be mindful of that. Um, you know, and other things is you want to make sure that you actually register your songs with one of the performing rights organizations. So you do get that public performance money. Um, you also want to register the sound recordings with sound exchange so that you get paid, uh, royalties for when that song, the sound recording streams on like Spotify, um, or Pandora. Cause you know, that's where, a uh, a lot of people are accessing music now. And if you don't have your music registered through sound exchange, you're basically leaving money on the table and walking away from it. Um, so, you know, and, and when it comes to the contracts regarding all of this, if you're dealing with a label or a publisher, I can't stress enough how important it is to use an attorney, uh, to go over that for you, because this is like, you fall down a rabbit hole. There are so many different licenses. There's so many different ways for them to, you know, tweak the language in a contract so that you're not getting what you should be getting. Um, that, you know, it's, it's a minefield really. So you want to make sure that you've got somebody to guide you through that and make sure you get out on the other side. Okay. And in one piece. Um, and that's really what an attorney will do for you in those situations. Yeah. Uh, now I've actually seen independent artists creating their own music publishing companies or their own version of um, ASCAP and BMI, but still they actually go uh, and register themselves or associate themselves with ASCAP or BMI. Um, how, how does that work in your experience? Yeah. So basically when they create their own publishing entity, what that just means is that's their own, um, you know, whether they set up an LLC or an S corp or something, that's their organization for handling all the licenses for the musical work. They still affiliate with ASCAP and BMI or ASCAP or BMI, um, whichever way, if it's a publishing company, they would affiliate with both because there's no way for that independent artist or their little company to go around to every single place where their music could possibly be publicly performed and contract with them 
to make sure they get paid for that. So that's what ASCAP and BMI do is they're just a clearinghouse for public performance rights and that's it. So even the major publishers affiliate with ASCAP and BMI to collect those public performance royalties on their behalf. Um, what the publishers, whether it's an indie, an indie artist who you know has their own publishing company or whether it's you know a bigger publisher, what their job is mainly is to issue licenses and collect money for other uses of the musical work. So like for mechanical license, a mechanical license is a license to do a, a cover version of a song, audio only cover. Right. Um, so that license would be granted by the publisher and the revenue would be collected by the publisher and then divvied up against amongst the songwriters um, or synchronization licenses, which is a license to put the musical work in a visual element. So that could be film, television, video games, or what we call micro licensing, which is licensing uh, at a lower rate for smaller uses, like a wedding video or something like that. Like, you know, like little, little videos or commercial videos, as far as like, you know, putting a video up, like I've got a video on my website that's like, Hey, you know, about us sort of a thing. Um, so the publisher handles that sort of licensing for the musical work copyright. Right. Yeah. I, I actually remember telling everyone at my wedding, don't record when they're about to pronounce this. Actually, don't record the, the ceremony. And everyone's like, why? Like, because I don't want to get sued. And they're like, why? <laughs> and it's because I told the DJ, because um, I didn't get married in an in a actual church. I got married where we were actually going to celebrate the, the party, though, after the reception. And I actually had uh, November Rain played after we're... Um, pronouncing us man, husband and wife that that whole part where it's just uh Al, um, axel playing the piano and about to go into the solo at the very end of the song and they were like so if that would have been posted on facebook yep if yep yeah, that would have gotten, gotten taken suit. down. Yeah, at the very least, yeah. it would have gotten taken down by their content ID system. And it, you know what? Mine was the exact same way. Like I, you know, the end of my wedding ceremony, there's, it's a Bright Eyes song that plays. But in the video that my photographer put together of my, you know, she did like a little video of all the wedding pictures. She used music that wasn't from the wedding because she had to get music that she could license um, you know, on a more reasonable basis, you know, when you use something like November rain, that's going to cost a lot of money, <laughs> you of know, course. A- um, Axel is going to get paid. Right. Exactly. You know, and rightfully so, you know, so that's, it's just one of those things, but there are lots of artists and this is a good point. This is a great way for independent artists who aren't well known to make money. Like, nope. You know, it's not something you're going to brag about like, Oh, I'm in, you know, some random couple's wedding video. But nonetheless, you know, that generates revenue from you in two different ways. One, because you get the fee up front for the synchronization license. And two, you get money on the back end from the public performance every time all of their friends and family watch that video. Um, And again, coming through your performing rights organizations and through sound exchange. So, you know, it's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. That's correct. I mean, going back to 1999... Um, obviously a lot of people were against Napster because it was piracy. No yeah. matter how you look at it, it was piracy. Right. It, it was illegal downloads, period. Actually, mm-hmm. a lot of people forget this. When you buy a disc, when you buy, when you used to buy CDs, you actually, um, had a, or maybe this is a myth. You could correct me here, Davey. You actually were only able to replicate or make a copy of it up to two times for your own personal use. So your CD would not get scratched. Uh, well, if you, you right, the original disc would not get scratched. Uh, that was like a myth or a myth and legend. Of, no, uh, you were allowed to make around. a backup copy. You could have, yeah. yeah, you could create backup copies. You just couldn't distribute them. Like, you know, so Correct. it was, it was for your own, you know, again, just a backup. So, you know, that's where, you know, it went from, you know, backing things up to piracy is when you start sharing it illegally. Yeah. Correct. So, I mean, that that's the whole thing. Distributing, it's actually what gets anyone in problem and troubles. And that's actually what happened with 
with Napster. They were actually distributing or enabling the distribution of peer-to-peer uh, digital files that were uh, registered as copyrights, uh, intellectual property for artists and musicians. And that translated into a revolution of technology, which is awesome because of peer-to-peer. Hence, now we're getting into blockchain, which is about peer-to-peer. And Singular DTP is going to be releasing a decentralized peer-to-peer distribution platform. But artists get paid in our case. I mean, yeah, and that's the it, difference. And you know, the, the record industry really, really missed a fantastic opportunity. They were yes, aware they of the technology. They, they, iTunes could have existed in some form or fashion well before it did, even you know, at the time of Napster. Because the thing was at the time, like the idea of being able to access things very easily and download them onto our computers you know, if there was an option to do it legally, people would have done it legally, but there was no option. And it created that black market Napster situation, you know, and once that was allowed to grow, people started to get it in their head. Like, why should I have to pay for music when I can get it for free? Um, you know, and I think it's really important that we, you know, as an industry explore like singular DTV is doing these alternate methods of distribution that facilitate getting content into consumers' hands and at the same time facilitate the content creator's ability to get paid because certainly they deserve payment for their work. You know, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of money and effort that goes into all of this. And, you know, our lives would be a sad, you know, colorless existence if there were no music and films and, you know, and, and so certainly there's value in that that we should pay for. So, it's that's why it's so important that we explore these these new methods of technology of you know distribution and monetization. You know how sad would have been 2011 and 2012 without someone like you by Adele. I know yeah. I'm making a joke, right? <laughs> but it, but I mean it, it is a great it is a great song to yeah. actually listen to when you're down and you you just want to eat ice cream and be and be crying <laughs> like like a heart. It's like the most heartbreaking song there is, in my opinion, or uh, Nothing Compares to You by, originally by Prince, made right. popular by Chenny O'Connor. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, you know, if it's, I actually, I actually um, like investing right into artist uh, pocket. I actually prefer to go directly to the artist and be like, here you go. I'm throwing money at you. I'm investing in you. I'm not investing in a brand. I'm not investing in a, in a, um, in a product. I'm investing in the person. I'm investing in the creativity of your intellectual property. I'm investing in you as an individual. And that's actually what, Singular DTP is trying to do with the whole tokenize your IP, tokenize everything as far and manage your manage your rights because contracts the way that they've been always uh, done in the entertainment industry, like we said a, a while back, is I will own uh, now your masters and then I will uh, license them the way that I see fit. And now to now I you owe me the advance that I just. Uh, provided you and you have to pay it up front. And what ended up happening right after Napster and iTunes came up was that record labels actually figure out, okay, so we're not actually selling CDs and the renegotiation of the contract for a new advancements and new um, artwork or new material from the artist was, okay, so we're going to bump from 20% to 40% the CD sales. But now um in order to do so, how about you give us a cut of the merchandise and ticket sales on your tours? Yeah, yeah, that's how they were making up for their loss. And, you know, I think that that part of the reason why blockchain is so important in this industry and, and why we really need to embrace it is because, you know, for your average independent artist or independent filmmaker, the fact is they don't have the time, the desire, or the knowledge to be able to execute all of these licenses and collect all of this money that they would need to do if they weren't using a label or if they weren't using a distributor, you know, in the traditional sense. And so, you know, you really have to, you know, pick your poison. How do you want to spend your day? Do you want to spend your day creating content that you will be able to sell? Or do you want to spend your day 
you know, issuing these licenses, tracking payments, trying to get payments out of people who owe you money, figuring out royalties and where you're owed money from, you know? And so the longer you spend on that as a creative, the less time you're creating, less time you spend creating, the less creative properties you have to monetize. So it doesn't make sense for the creative to be the one to do this. But when you have a situation where you're, you're using blockchain, it allows us to kind of work on more of an autopilot, you know, uh, procedure. So you don't have to sit there and constantly be eyeballing it. Instead, the technology is handling that for you. Um, and it makes it so much easier to focus on the creative work than, you know, having to worry about the administrative side of things. Exactly. Actually, actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because Zach LeBeau, the CEO and co-founder of Singular DTV, so, uh, whenever we actually having a conversation, he's like, I just, I just, I just want to make art. I just want to do my creative stuff. Right. And I have to be doing, I have to be talking with lots of lawyers, mm -hmm. uh, consultants and such, because that's part of his, that's part of him as being a CEO. That's part, that's part of his role. Oh, but, if you, but if you talk to Zach, he's a, such a creative person. He has this amazing energy. He's like, I just want to write, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, for sure. And that's, and that's something I see over and over again with my clients. And I'm like, I know coming to see me, you're talking to me is a necessary evil, but you know what, let's get this done and like, make sure you're taken care of so that later you don't have to see me more, you know? Um, right. and so, you know, I'm a big fan of everybody do what they're good at. You know, everybody's got a niche. Everybody's got something that they excel at. That's what you should be doing. You know, nobody wants me recording music. Nobody, they certainly don't want me singing. Um, right. They don't want if you, me. If you say so. <laughs> oh, I do. And so do the people who have heard me. Um, but, uh, you know, and they don't want me shooting movies. I'm, I'm not that girl. You know, I do better in other areas. So when everybody does what they are best at, you wind up with a better product across the board. It's just a more efficient use of everybody's time and skill set. That's correct. Now, what about, for example, when we're talking about distribution, um, even James Hetfield from Metallica, always mentioning Metallica, <laughs> he said that he goes um, that they now that they have their own label and they have their own their own uh, music publishing company and they have their own way of actually doing everything, even their own pressing, they still need international distributors to figure out. Uh, the rest of the world, mainly Europe, because of so many countries in the world. And now that they actually have the power, they have the masters and such, they get to uh, dictate on how things are going to be work and how the art is going to be delivered, presented, distributed across the world. Damn, calling their the shots. Um, now, Singular DTB is, you know, we've been actually getting track with. Um, with movies and we're, we're talking to many different people, um, about movie distribution with us because we're going to be regionalist and borderless because of our distribution platform, meaning that whoever is in Hong Kong that actually wants to do their movie can actually distribute it, uh, through the, our distribution platform and anyone else in LA or Hawaii can actually enjoy the content. And we don't have to get into this whole licensing and distribution of, um, you know, this co company a that's based in LA, it's actually licensing to company B that's based on, uh, London and it will replicate into the UK. And now this other person from France says, Oh, we want to have that. Okay. So, There's another contract for the distributor in France over here, or if you can actually go to a major distributor and take care of at least Western Europe, but they're going to ask for a bigger cut of the deal as far as distribution goes. And then that translates into the artist or the filmmaker not getting as much money because they're dealing with major and major. And obviously everyone wants to get paid mm -hmm. and they're not, they're not going to be as transparent as if they were actually be able to do it through blockchain where you set the price and it's like everyone gets paid the amount that we dictate as the, Uh, creator because I still manage my rights because I tokenize in my my film digitally and now I can control my IP but still how does that translate into if you were to do it the legacy um, worldwide 
how we, how does it translate into you? Okay, I registered my content in the U.S. Is there any way that I can register it internationally so I'm protected, or vice versa? If I if I'm a Guatemalan filmmaker such as Javier Borrello, and he wants to distribute it in the U.S., should he register it in Guatemala and register it as well in the U.S.? It totally depends. For copyright. On, yeah, I mean, it it actually depends on which other country we're talking about because they're also very different. Um, some countries don't even have a registration mechanism, like, uh, mechanism in place. Um, so for example, like in, in the UK and in England specifically, there's not a, a governmental registration for your copyright. It just is like, you just have one and there's no registration procedure even. Um, so there's, you know, whether or not you would register in that other jurisdiction, if that's where you're based out of depends on what that jurisdiction's rules are, you know, what their laws are. Um, there is an international treaty that there's, you know, on any given day, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 160-ish countries that are a party to this, this treaty regarding um, cross-border enforcement um, of copyright and, and maintaining certain protections for artists. That, and that facilitates your ability to you know, protect your music in, in other jurisdictions. But it de- again, it depends on you know, where your work is being exploited, where it's being used, where you're licensing it, or where it's being infringed. You know, there, there are certain places where if we find an infringement in a specific jurisdiction, we're like, yeah, there's really not much we can do about that. Like, you know, in reality, can we do something? Yes. Is it going to have the impact that we want? Are we going to be able to get the outcome we want? No. Um, no. Um, you know, so and that just depends on which jurisdiction you're talking about. So it's, it's all really kind of um, case by case specific and fact specific based on which location you're referencing. But, um, you know, the short answer now that I've given you the long one is uh, that, you know, if you want to register, if you release your work in the States and you want to register your work in the States, you certainly can. Um, even, you know, you don't have to be a U.S. citizen to register your copyrights in the United States. Um, might that wind up being of a benefit in the future? It it might, you know, it just kind of depends on what happens that you need to avail yourself of the, you know, benefits of that registration. So potentially it could benefit you in the long run. And, you know, the fact of the matter is the registration with the copyright office, most registrations cost $35. So it's really not wildly expensive and you only do it once. There's no renewal. So that's $35 that protects you for your entire life plus an additional 70 years after, because that's how long the copyright lasts for. It's interesting. Now, what about, for example, something as simple as involving producers, executive producers and such, and the whole, I'm going to get 2% of the gross, and then you get 15% of the net pay of the income generated by this art form. Because I've actually seen deals when uh, where they, uh, the executive producer of the album or even the or of the film, they just ask for a very tiny percent, but they actually ask it from the gross, and they get oh, yeah. it. And you're yeah. and you're like, well, it's just two percent. Yeah, tell me, tell me two percent of everything that it's recoup worldwide from the Avengers Infinity War. I'm not sponsoring the Avengers Infinity War, <laughs> but I do like the movie. But two percent of, let's say two percent of eight of eight eight hundred million dollars. I mean, with that, I would retire and I would and I would stay chill, chill in the beach here in Puerto Rico. Yeah, of course. And that's the I thing, would. like that, that distinction between gross and net and also the definition of what is net and how we get net is critical. Yes. It's absolutely critical because, you know, again, this goes back to contracts being basically magic spells and, you know, like how you, what your words you use is how you cast the spell and that's what the outcome is. One of the biggest thing in film contracts is how do we define net profits? Because I could tell you like, oh yeah, I want you to work on my film. You're going to be my DP and I'm going to give you, you know, 5% of net. It doesn't, I could have said 75% of net. And until I give you the definition of what net is, that number means nothing. Um, because that's where, you know, what is and what isn't net, that's where it all comes into play. Like what's deductible, what's not. And, um, with major studio movies, like there's something called Hollywood accounting, which is, you know, 
it's, it's a derogatory term for how they structure that formula for net profits because it's set up to fail. It's set up to, to minimize their payouts in most situations. Now, not every, you know what I mean? I'm not going to paint with a broad brush here and say every film studio does this. They don't, but it has been a common practice. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that a lot of that is really non-negotiable for most people. Um, if you're famous, you can negotiate your way out of that. And if you're, you know, if you have a lot of star power, you can get a percentage of gross. But if you're an average person or if you're up and coming, you know, you're going to wind up relegated to the world of this. You get a percentage of net and this is how it works. And they frequently don't even, they're not willing to negotiate how they define the formula of net. And one quick example of that is I was working on a, a contract with a major film studio for one of my clients who's a writer and they were picking up the rights to his property to turn his work that he had written into a feature length film. And, um, the budget on the film was like $40 million. So it was, it was a big, you know, pretty big film. Um, and so when I was going through the contract, it was almost, it was like around 10 pages to, to describe how they got to what is net profit. So it took them 10 pages to tell me the formula for what is net profit in those 10 pages. I said to the, the person, uh, who I was negotiating with the, you know, the legal team over there at the studio, I said, Hey, there's this one part where this comma should be a semicolon. And she says to me, Oh my gosh, you're exactly right. I have to get approval to change that. And she was not like some lower level attorney. She was one of the VPs. So like a VP in a major studio had to get, you know, a further up the line executive blessing to change a piece of punctuation. Um, that's how set in stone that can be if you don't have star power. Oh yeah, definitely. No. And, and it's funny because I've actually, uh, I read the contract I found it after digging a while. I've read the contract between Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson for him being the producer for Thriller and Bad and so on. And you know that recently Quincy Jones actually sued um, the Michael Jackson state basically because after Michael passed away, um, they remastered and re-released the 25th anniversary version of Thriller, and then they were going to do a couple of other um, records of, of Michael. And then Quincy basically sued because he's, he said, I'm entitled to those because they're remasters, you're re-releasing them. I'm entitled to royalties out of that. And it's because he actually uh, made the deal when he came as a producer to not only get paid up front for his work, but actually be part of the generation of revenue that the album and the songs could actually be part of it's mainly and i remember because bruce sweetin said it when i met him at full sale back in i'm gonna say january of 2007 that he quincy jones and michael were going back and forth about beat it and how the song was gonna actually come out and that over 90 mixes that bruce had to do for um, beat it, and then they act, and the one that I was actually published was the second mix that he actually made. But Quincy and Michael were going back and forth about songs, and that translated into Quincy being part of the um, original songwriter and some sort, and that translated into Royal Seas, and that translated into give me a percent of the gross of the record sales, and so on and so forth. And even over 30 years later, he still gets paid. Oh, absolutely. And paid well. <laughs> paid uh, very well. I, I, I actually, I would like to see how much he got out of the French Prince of Bel Air. Oh, yeah. Oh, that would be, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that would be, that would be nice to see. Yeah. I've, I've, I actually heard about someone that worked closely with uh, Quincy and Quincy told him back in the nineties, I should not, I should not go back to work, but it, I mean, it's just out there and I'm, and I'm, I make, I make, I make stuff happen. So I just keep going and the money's good. Yeah. Well, makes sense. Right. Especially, especially if you know how to negotiate, just like, uh, our actor Jack Nicholson did in, in Batman. He actually asked for, uh, revenues of the, of the film. He asked for a lower, payment and revenues and Robert Downey Jr. did it for Avengers first 
Um, he asked for a lower uh, upfront paid as an actor, and then he became a producer, and boom, he became the biggest actor, uh, the best paid actor in 2012 because of Avengers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's, you know, and like in the history of Hollywood, initially, you know, actors didn't get any percentage of uh, the revenue of the film. They were just, you know, paid a set amount. They were under an annual contract. And, um, you know, that was like revolutionary when that first happened that somebody was like, Hey, just, you know, pay me a percentage on the back end." And the studio thought like, Oh, this is hilarious. We're going to get away with, you know, paying him so much less, but yet he made so much more because he got a percentage of the revenue on the back end that that kind of changed the business model. And then when the studio saw how much money they were losing because they were giving, you know, percentages out to their, their big talent, um, that's when they started, you know, adjusting how they calculate what is net profits in order to, you know, right. reserve that money back for themselves. Yeah. And, and Stevie Wonder did it back in, in the 70s when his original contract with, with Motown was up and um, and they threw him the party to renew the contract. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do this. And he stepped away from Motown for a while. Then he had power to renegotiate because he was no longer in a contract right. set set by their, by Motown standards. It was a contract that he came in an agreement with Motown and he got, I owned my masters and I'm going to have creative uh, decision of my work. And I'm going to have creative decision of how the, mu- the music is going to be portrayed, how the album is going to be released, how the artwork, so on and so forth. And superstitions came out and the classical period for stevie wonder came uh, came to be diana ross saw that she wasn't able to actually get in, in, con- in a, an agreement with motown and that resulted in the biggest uh upfront record deal at that point in time and then we moved over to 2008 and we got uh entities such as live nation that signed up madonna for a millionaire uh, one of the biggest contracts at that point in time so they would actually tap into her um music royalties her touring sales her merchandise sales yeah. anything that madonna touched that became branded by by madonna live nation actually got paid because what they said was since we're one of the biggest worldwide um you know live event distributors and managers we're going to help you with ticket sales and um your stages and your sound and your lights and everything so you don't have to go around the world we're going to take care of all that and so you just we're going to just going to dump this huge amount of money to you and sign up with us and we're going to help you and that translated into madonna being in a 10-year agreement if i if i'm not mistaken giving away way a whole a whole lot more money to Life Nation, if she would have done it herself, True. and a hundred and, and, and a ticket to a Madonna concert is not a hundred dollars; it's a little bit more. So imagine if they actually get, you know, fifty or th- even thirty percent of the of the t- uh, concert ticket plus the merchandise that you get that you get to sell and the concert plus the revenue of the album plus the revenue if Madonna makes a movie plus everything everything else, you know, right. Yeah. And, you know, and things like that, like for Madonna, like that consolidation in in having Live Nation handle everything for her might make sense because she can have them, you know, take a percentage of everything across the board, but she can also negotiate for them to take a smaller percentage than they would take with a a lesser known artist because, you know, 2% of Madonna is like getting 99% of anybody else, you know, like she, she, you know, has huge ticket prices and she has a massive fan base and she's going to guarantee to sell out an arena, you know? So even though she has them, you know, taking care of everything across the board, you know, at the same time though, she's seeing a lot smaller percentage taken out versus, you know, the smaller artist, um, you know, that sort of consolidation isn't going to make sense for them um, to have somebody take a percentage of their merch, you know, that, you know, they could be doing it themselves or, you know, a percentage of their tour, you know, whether or not they need that assistance, that sort of assistance with a tour, you know, a smaller tour is not logistically anything like a massive arena tour. Um, you know, so it's not every deal is right for every person, I guess is kind of what I was saying. Yeah, no. And I agree. But one of the things that, uh, that I would like to mention about the whole life nation, life nation is just one entity. Right. It's a centralized organization 
taking control and calling the shots on the deals and negotiations with the artists. Now, imagine the artists actually being the starting point and having the fans not only participate in, you know, help build the economy for the artists through blockchain technology and their tokenization, but also being part of that sustainable economy that the artist creates and generates through blockchain technology and his own tokens. Because the main thing and the problem with artists is that they sign agreements in, with record labels or even the, the film. They sign agreements with X amount of um, albums or film for X amount of money. And once you are done with that, you're either in debt, you didn't get paid, and then now you have to find more funding to actually deliver a new art form, a new record, a new film, and then you have to start back from, back from scratch. Now, through blockchain and tokenization, depending on the tokenomic model that you actually choose to, you create a sustainable economy. What that translates into is you have your own bank, so you don't actually have to go and sell your rights to get funding to start on your next project. And that's that's the deal breaker with the new singular DB model through tokit.io rather than going legacy world and having these people actually control and manage your rights and even calling the shots on how you want to dress, talk, who you should go to, where you should go on and how it's going to be distributed. And Oh, the, the movie, you have the movie written the script a certain way, but we're going to tone it down because we actually want to tap into PE 13 children mm -hmm. so we can monetize this much more. And then, the art that was perceived by the director and the script uh, writer gets diluted into a CW type of content. Yes, absolutely. It absolutely does. For sure. It's it's very it sucks very bad. Yeah, no, I um, agree, for sure. Well, finishing down today's uh episode, um, Davy, one of the questions that I one of the last questions that I want to ask is what's the worst thing that you've seen that can happen to someone that has come to you and be like, I need help. This is happening and I didn't see it coming. Oh man, there's been a few things. There's, there's been, there's been a few really, really, really bad ones when it's like, and, and you know what the thing is with every single one of them, they were all avoidable. These were all things that could have been totally avoidable. Didn't need to happen to these people if they would have done something at the beginning, if they would have been smart on the front end and gotten some advice and understood what they were getting into or gotten some advice about whether or not they should get into this situation, you know, um, the outcome would not have happened the way it did. But, um, a couple of them, uh, I had a client once, um, who hired a producer to, uh, record mix and master an album for him and this and he was a kid like he was not a kid kid but you know he was he was 19 when he hired this guy and he used the money that he inherited when his dad passed away and everybody told him this producer's great and this is totally gonna launch your career and so this kid uses this money that he got from his dad passing to do this album the guy gives him the producer gives him a contract to sign um the kid just signed it you know he was pretty naive and, um, a year later, he still doesn't have the full album delivered yet. And, you know, part of the deal was supposed to be that he was, the producer was selling him five songs. So the kid had five that he wrote producer was selling him another five to do a, a whole LP. And, um, so not only a year later was the full album, not, you know, delivered yet, which ridiculous delay on that. Um, but also he heard on the radio, some other artist performing one of those songs that was supposed to be his, that he supposedly bought it, bought from the producer. And so he comes into my office and I look at the contract and nowhere in the contract does it say anything about those particular songs, either being a work for hire and nowhere in the contract does it say there's an assignment of copyright. It just said that the producer will give the artist these five songs and he'll provide them with these five songs that doesn't transfer a copyright. And so this client of mine thought he bought those songs. And the fact of the matter is legally he did not because the right words weren't there. So the spell wasn't cast properly to stick with that analogy. And the sad part of the story is 
he spent tens of thousands of dollars on this, like an obscene amount of money. And he's like, so what can I do? And I'm like, well, I can write him a letter and tell him he's late. And that's about like, and there wasn't even a due date in the contract for when the guy had to deliver stuff. So we had to rely on what's commercially reasonable. So like basically he had wildly overpaid for this one album and, um, and didn't get what he thought he was buying. So, you know, that was one situation. Um, another situation was, had to do with concert promoting these poor guys, like totally got swindled and, uh, lost all of this money. And not only did they get swindled and lose, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, they were getting sued by somebody else. Um, because of this, uh, promoter they had been working with, the promoter was actually engaged in a Ponzi scheme and the FBI was after him and the securities and exchange commission was after him. And so, Oh yeah. And so the client came to me and they're like, so the FBI wants to interview us and we're getting sued by these other people and we don't know what's going on. And I'm like, you got suckered into a Ponzi scheme. And, uh, and you know, and the other thing was like, they, the FBI could very well be looking at them too. You know, like that's, you know, they might not just be looking for that one guy who's now on the lam. So like there's some crazy stuff that happens. Um, you know, it's, but again, all of this stuff is avoidable. You know, like if, if you stop and get advice on the front end, you know, there t- if, you know, with, with that artist, if I had seen that contract before the artist signed it, I would have been like, absolutely not. Are you paying this money and signing this document? Like you need a proper document that gives you the rights and we need some due dates and some other protections in there. So, you know, um, those are a couple of them, but I've seen, I've seen lots of crazy stuff go down. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've actually seen my share of very bad deals, uh, even though I'm not an attorney, because of your class, uh, real world experience. And I'll, every single time someone is like, I got this contract. All right, let me look at it from my very bad experience. This is my disclaimer, <laughs> as well as I'm not a legal advisor. And I always, I always get that one book, Legal Aspects of the Music Industry. And I sit down with it and I start revising a couple of things that I always had marked back since I took the class. Mm-hmm. Again, not mentioning time. <laughs> and and then I'm like, you should talk to an entertainment lawyer. You should talk to a finance lawyer. Well, it can't be just one lawyer. No. There is finance stuff and there is entertainment stuff. If you can actually find a lawyer that is very well versed in both, that's amazing. Start with the entertainment lawyer. Talk to him about that. And if it's if there is something else that he needs to consult, he will refer you to the right person. But whenever you go to entertainment um, territory, you have to know about whether it's intellectual property and whether it's entertainment. And there's there are things that are very different in that sort of thing sort of things and mainly when they're about to sign a, uh, an agreement with a manager i'm like dude don't don't do don't don't go elvis elvis presley style don't go with 50 50 oh That's and you gonna- know a manager can ruin an artist's career faster than anything and you know it's one of the most important deals you have and it's a okay. massive trust situation and when people don't get outside advice before they enter a deal with a manager it just makes me cringe like oh oh <laughs> it's that can that can go very badly yeah and mainly when their managers are the parents yes sometimes Mm -hmm. oh god it's it's hard to be a parent and a manager you know like those are two very different roles and you know while both claim to want what's best you know what's best from a mom's perspective isn't always what's best from a manager's perspective. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to do both roles. Well, which is why we often see it going awry, you know? Yeah, that's true. Well, Davey, thank you so much for uh, talking to us, uh, for sharing all of your knowledge. Again, people uh, disclaimer right here, and I'm actually going to write it down. This episode does not represent legal advice. This episode is for educational purposes only. And if you actually have questions or anything like that, please consult with your uh, advisor, your legal advisor, your lawyer, specifically in the territory that you are exploring, whether it's intellectual property, uh, music industry, entertainment, or film industry. Please consult with your legal advisor because your situation might be very unique rather than very broad 
which is actually what we talked about today, correct? Yes, exactly. Thank you. All right. Uh, anything else you would like to share with us um, anywhere we can find you? I know you're on Twitter. I am on Twitter. I'm not great about Twitter, um, but I am there. It's um, my handle on Twitter. It's Davy underscore ESQ for Esquire. Um, you can also uh, find my firm's Facebook page, which um, we are Mealy and Jay. And, um, we post a lot of stuff on there about upcoming events and articles and, you know, all sorts of things, you know, um, and certainly we'll be sharing a link to this, uh, podcast once it comes up. Um, yep. so that's a, a really good way to kind of see what we're up to and what's going on in the entertainment industry. We post, you know, like, Hey, check this out. You know, this is what's happening kind of stuff. So, um, those are good ways to, uh, kind of keep tabs on what's going on. Perfect. Well, thanks to the community, token holders, and supporters of Singular DTB. Thanks, uh, thanks to everyone that's actually in the entertainment industry. You can find Singular DTB at singulardtb.com, toki.io, singularx.com, facebook.com slash singulardtb, twitter.com slash singulardtb, instagram.com slash singulardtb, and LinkedIn slash company slash singulardtb. My name is Michael 27A, Miguel Martinez, Singular DTV's community manager. See you all in the blockchain. Have a good one.